If you will uh, turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll continue in our study of God's Word this day. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, if these sound familiar to you, it's because we looked at it last week and we didn't finish. And uh, uh, praying the Lord we will finish today <laughs> these opening verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, we're so thankful you're a God who has spoken, that you've not left us to just some subjective inner feeling of what is true, You've not left us to just the best that we can come up with in our group discussions about what is true, but that you have spoken the truth, eternal truth, and you've spoken it in a way that we can understand. And Lord, in our time together, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into that very truth, that we would understand it in our minds, that you would plant it in our hearts. Give us alertness during this time that we have to give over to your word. We'll thank you ahead of time for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The epistle begins not with just uh, hi guys, but uh, with uh, essentially an advanced organizer of core biblical truths. And that's why it's always good for us in the New Testament epistles not to just jump over them and say, oh, well, that's just sort of culturally a lot of flowery speech, and that's how they opened their their uh, letters that we would open with dear so-and-so, uh, because that's not what was true at that period of time. And God had always had a purpose for the introduction. It set the stage. It was an advanced organizer for truths that he's going to develop much more in the course of the epistle itself. This particular epistle opens up with reminding us about three core truths that all of us need to grasp, have a good understanding of as believers. Last week, we looked at the first two of those truths. Truth number one is that we as redeemed believers are actually aliens, exiles in this world. I use both those terms because both are used in different translations, contemporary translations of the scripture. The Greek word is parapodimos, which could be translated sojourner or pilgrim or alien or exile. That's the reason we have it. The meaning of the word, it's used in the Greek language to describe a difference between somebody who's simply traveling, like on vacation and touring different places, and a person who is forced to live in an area outside of their homeland. This is the individual forced to live outside of their homeland. So they're not just visiting and traveling, they're actually taking up residence in an area that's not their own. Uh, that And undergirding that concept, God wants to drive that home to us because he wants us to remember that we actually don't belong any place we find ourselves. 
we're there under divine commission. God wants us there. But it's not our homeland. All those who've come to know Christ as Savior and have been redeemed have been made citizens of heaven. We have a different homeland. And part of the transformation at our heart that occurs as we are saved, as we are born anew, makes it impossible for us to feel at home any longer, at least completely so, in the world in which we find ourselves, even if we have been born there. We no longer fit. And that undergirds part of the reason that believers, who are often puzzled by it, uh, part of the reason they feel that they don't fit. They, the believer taking their faith seriously and seeking to grow finds one of the outcomes of following Christ is that they're like a round peg in a square hole. Where before they fit pretty easily, now they no longer fit. Think about Romans 12.2, where we're commanded not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed through the renewing of our mind. God understands that we who at one time did fit, but no longer fit, face a great temptation to try to fit once again in the culture and in the world in which we come from. And God says, that pressure that is there on you to try to conform once again to what you at one time were is not a pressure I want you to give into. It is my plan for you to stay not fitting. It is my plan for you to be a stranger in exile in the midst of the world that you find yourself in. I don't want you to fit. I don't want you to conform to it. Last week I talked about how all of us as social creatures face a great pressure to conform, a great pressure to be accepted by the group. We want, at a deep level, to be accepted by the people that make up our culture, that make up the circle of people that we know. And God says, you need to understand that the price of being truly accepted is the price of conforming to what I've commanded to you not to conform to. I'm calling for you to live a different world, a different life. Uh, And therefore, we are, in fact, exiles. We cannot and please God, fit into that which we once were in. And by the way, that's supposed to be a red light going off in our lives. If I'm starting to fit, that's not a good thing. That's not a sign of of well-adjusted people. It's a sign that you're not in harmony with what God has redeemed you and transformed you to be. You shouldn't fit. You shouldn't fit, at least not completely. We have a responsibility to interact with the world that God has placed us in. We have a responsibility to meaningfully relate to the people in it, but not through the price of conformity, because we actually have a different homeland now. The second truth that we looked at was the truth that we were purposely dispersed as exiles. Diaspora is the Greek term. And that that term describes a purposeful scattering. In other words, we're not just randomly scattered out. This word was often used in agriculture in the Greek language to describe the farmer purposely sowing the seed in a given place. Now, not all of it, even when purposely sown, ends up growing right. But nonetheless, it's not just that the seed just kind of fell. There was a sowing of it, a purposeful sowing of it to create a crop. You and I are not in our homeland. We are in a foreign land, but we're not there by accident. 
We're there where we find ourselves in the plan of God and the purpose of God because he has purposely sown us there. He has placed us there. Uh, The Jews, by the way, were the classic example of this diaspora uh, because the Jews were scattered out of their homeland even at the time of Christ and certainly afterwards and they were spread around outside outside of Palestine and Israel. They were part of the diaspora. But God uses this term not to describe just the Jews. He uses it here in 1 Peter to describe the redeemed believer. And he says, you are dispersed too. Just as literally the Jews were dispersed from Palestine, from Jerusalem, and they couldn't live there anymore, and now they had to live in another place, you've been dispersed from what had formerly been, uh, well, not even formerly, you've been dispersed from what is now your homeland, the kingdom, and I have you in this place that you're only going to be temporarily in, which is the world. In this part of the world is where I dispersed you by design. Why did you disperse us, Lord? He says, because I want you to be salt and light. In the midst of a fallen world, I purposely scattered you, living in contrast, not conformity to the culture I put you in. I've put you there so that you can be salt and light. He's dispersed us so that we could be his ambassadors. If we think of it in the 2 Corinthians chapter 5 sense, where we are in Christ's ambassadors, God's making his appeal through us. Brothers and sisters, bottom line of that, you are of no use in this world if you are not distinctive from this world. If you are not salt and light, you serve no purpose as a child of God. God purposely has made us exiles, and he's purposely dispersed us to where he placed us. We cannot fulfill his intention in all of that if we are living in conformity to the culture we find ourselves in. Well, there's a third truth that we encounter in this opening verses as well, and we'll look at that today. Even though you and I are now aliens because of new life in Christ... And even though we're now dispersed, in a way, purposely dispersed, from the homeland that we are designed now to be part of, to be with the Lord, commonwealth in heaven, we're still, in God's plan, a chosen people. We are still an elect people. True believers are not only dispersed exiles, they are elect dispersed Exiles. The word elect that we encounter here in these opening verses, verse 1 and beyond, comes from the Greek word eklektos. Now, why do, I, why do I share that with you? Number one, to say it's a meaningless word per se, because it's a Greek word we've transliterated into English. In other words, it doesn't have any roots in our culture. It's simply a term from another language we transliterate into our language. Uh, the word Eklektos comes from two parts of a Greek word. Number one, ek, which means from, and lego, which means to pick out or to gather from. So literally, the word just means to be picked out or chosen. Uh, In fact, many of the translations don't use the word elector, they use the word chosen. New American Standard Version, a good example of that. New International Version, a good example of that. They use the word chosen. Now, why is that? Because the essence of eklektos means to be picked out or chosen. Now, the word elect can, also, can mean that, but in our language, the word elect means more than that. 
Let me give you an example. We use the word elect. Let's think of elections in our, in our country. Uh, we use the word elect to describe an individual who got enough votes to defeat another person who supposedly was equally qualified to get into the role, or equally unqualified as the case may be. Uh, you follow the word elect has connotations to it that were not part of eklektos in the Greek. Uh, nobody's running for anything with God. <laughs> it isn't that, you, you know, you, you won the election, somebody else didn't win it, you know, and you're both equally qualified to be in that role. Uh, the fact of the matter is nobody's qualified to be in relationship with God because we're all sinners and separated from God. And so I think the decision to use chosen is a better decision for us because it gets us closer to what is going on in this passage But whether we use the term elect or chosen here in terms of not just our Bible translation, but even in our thinking, it's a wonderful word when you look at it and think about it in the scriptures. It means that God, for reasons that we don't completely understand, amazingly picked you out. Understanding all of us were undeserving, there's an amazement dimension to this, isn't there? And there's why? You know, why did God pick us out? Why did God choose us? Why did he elect us? I was thinking of that experience that I believe just about everybody has had. When you were younger, let's say a, a child, a youth, you know, you, you, all of us were in those situations where they were choosing upsides for things, especially even in sports, and uh, choosing upsides. And we all except for the rare individual, had the experience of finding we didn't get picked as quick as we would have liked to have been picked. <laughs> and, and people were picking up different people for different reasons to be on things. And, and, and at, at a very deep level, during that period of our life, uh, and maybe not only then, uh, we, we would have given just about anything to be picked quicker or earlier because there was a certain sense of rejection, in the not being picked out. We know that feeling. And I'm calling for you to think about that feeling so that you can appreciate the wonder that you who deserved, who didn't even deserve to be picked, and if you were stacking up against God's standards, you would have been picked last, you know. Think of the wonder of it that the Heavenly Father picked you an undeserving one. He chose you. It's an amazing truth. Filled with mystery, yes, but an amazing truth nonetheless. And by the way, brothers and sisters, the scripture is filled with these. I think of it like uh, icebergs floating in the ocean. An iceberg, nine-tenths of the icebergs below the surface. You better pay attention when you see the top of it above the surface, but there's a lot more you don't see of the iceberg. And that's why you have to be so careful around them. I mean, they don't just go straight down so that the, the size of the iceberg is simply what you see above the surface. They come out in very irregular ways, and they're suspended in the water. Biblical truth sometimes takes that form. God reveals to us the top of the iceberg. He reveals something that is true, and we can get a hold of it. But he doesn't reveal to us everything about that truth. Now, why would God hold that back from us? Basically because we're finite and stupid. We couldn't understand what's below the surface if he tried to reveal it to us. 
Jesus got at that when he was talking to his disciples. Well, you know, you can't even you can't even understand what I'm revealing uh, about earthly things. How could you understand heavenly things? You know, there, God in His mercy didn't just give us meaningless information as finite people that we could never process. He gave us what we could process, but He doesn't give us everything we would like to know because He knows we couldn't understand it if He gave it to us. You follow that point? We need to approach the Word of God that way. It's not that what we see there is wrong because we can't understand all of the implications of it. It's not wrong or not true because I can't see what's below the surface on the iceberg. It simply means it's true, he's revealed it, and I can understand that, so I can go to the mat on the fact this is true, but I don't understand all of the reasons and all of the implications. Let's be humble people when we approach the Word of God. So that like Paul at the end of the book, at the end of the 11th chapter of, of Romans, who's been used by God to reveal some very dramatic and amazing and astounding things throughout those opening chapters, you know, like throws his hands up and says, this is all amazing. Who can understand all of this? Meaning, we can understand what's been revealed. We just can't understand all that's behind what's been revealed. I hope you can approach the Word of God that way and do approach the Word of God that way. At the very least, when it comes to the idea of being elect or chosen, it means that we're very special to the Heavenly Father. He uses that term in the Greek Old Testament. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but the Septuagint was the translation into Greek of the Old Testament. The word electos is used to describe the Jews. They were God's picked out ones. They were God's chosen people. And in fact, that terminology still is a common one to use to describe the Jewish race. He were, they were his electos. And by the way, I believe objectively from the scripture, God has a continuing plan for them. And a continuing plan that will see much more of a fruition in the tribulation period and in the millennial period. We come to the New Testament and now... He hasn't stopped using electos in relationship to the Jews. In fact, he uses it that way in the New Testament. But now he adds to it by using electos to describe the redeemed believer. In the New Testament era, gospel believers have become God's picked out ones, God's elect. No matter how unimportant you may think you are, and sometimes we have visions of grandeur, and other times we have visions of despair, and they can alternate in the same week. I don't know if you've had that experience. But uh, no, matter, no matter what we may think, the God of the universe has electos in response to us, if we are his children. He's chosen us. Now, I was thinking of Psalm 8 in this regard, verses 3 and 4. Listen to these words. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? What, or the son of man that you care for him? In other words, I think about God, I look at what he's done, I look at creation, I even look at his word, and then I look at me in the mirror and think, wait a second, <laughs> uh, who am I that you even know I exist? I mean, I mean what, what is there about us? It, and it ought to be that. You know, what are we anyway? But the fact is, God says, I know. Remember we were singing, you know, his eyes on the sparrow. He knows every hair on our head. He knows and he cares about us. It's astounding. 
It's astounding. Now, as we consider that, this electos term, uh, as we consider this wonder, this top of the iceberg, (laughs) you know, there's no question it's true, God has said this, Uh, then we are turned to the question of, well, why did he choose us? You know, why did he make that choice? Uh, And this passage begins by saying, well, he made that choice based on his foreknowledge. He says this was according, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to comes from a Greek word, which means the basis of the choice, the reason for the choice. We were chosen on the basis of something, is what that says. And that something is presented here as the foreknowledge of God. All right, good so far, Gary, but it's still pretty foggy. I mean, what what does that mean? What does he mean that we were chosen on the foreknowledge of God? Well, the word, let's look at that word foreknowledge. That English word foreknowledge translates the Greek word prognosin. We encounter that Greek word, by the way, the root of it, in words like prognosis, prognosticate, in the English, the modern English. Uh, Basically, prognosin means this. Knowledge that is known prior to the actions taken. Do you follow that? Let me repeat it. Uh, Prognosin means knowledge that is known prior to the actions taken. To know the action beforehand. That's prognosis. Prognosin, I mean. We encounter that same word, Greek word prognosin, in Romans 8.29, where it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Prognosin. Now, if this is the case... And I I present that rhetorically. Of course it's the case. That's what he says. (laughs) It's not like that's open to discussion. Uh, If this is the case, then the question remains, what is it that God, what did he know that we ended up doing before? Or what did he know that we ended up doing before we ever did it? Okay, you follow that phrase? In other words, what did he know was happening before it was ever happening? Prognosis and foreknowledge over time. Uh, and that question, which I know it's, it was sort of stumbling out of my mouth, but it's, it's fairly easy to state that question, a whole lot easier to state the question than to answer the question. Uh, what is it that he knew uh, that before it ever was done that uh, led to that? Uh, and therefore, it should be no surprise to anyone that that particular part of the question has been the area of debate by Bible scholars and teachers for the past 2,000 years. You know, they're trying to sort that out and understand. And, and the answer is, why is there such debate? Is it, is it that some people believe the Bible and others don't? Well, sometimes that's the case. There's a lot of people who don't believe the Bible, so anything they don't like, they, they reject. But it's less that. We're talking about people that take the Word of God seriously. Why is there such debate in trying to answer that piece of the question? And I believe the answer is this. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says we need to learn the lesson of not going beyond what's written. I believe the answer, the full answer, to this question lies below the surface. In other words, it's not the part of the iceberg you see. It's the part that you don't see, but you know is there kind of below the surface. 
If the answer ultimately rests below the surface, it stands to reason we'll never quite be in unity about what that exactly is, because none of us can see into that. So it's speculation that we build on. We, some people speculate better than others, some people think better than others, but it's still thinking, not revelation, that ends up with the division that people are in. One of the things that we know in answer to that question is that, well, one thing we know, no matter what was done, no matter what was known to be done before it was done, whatever went into being chosen had nothing, had nothing to do with whether we deserved it or not. Uh, that we can say with very strong message from the Scripture. The fact is, all of us are sinners and separated from God. There were no good people. There still aren't. Ephesians 2 describes us all as, by nature, objects of wrath, sinners lost and without hope and without God in this world. In other words, whatever went into all of this, again, we're talking a little below the the iceberg, below the surface. What we're not going to find there when we're with the Lord is that some of us deserve something other people didn't. I mean, we were all pathetic, basically. Rebels against God. That's the truth of it. So whatever was in this choosing, this picking, this elect toss, it had nothing to do with any good works any of us did. So we can remove that off, off the answer list. You know, yeah, God, God saw ahead of time that I'd be a pretty good guy, and so he said, okay, well, we'll do that. No, no, that's not it. You know, that's not part of it. Uh, so we can throw that out. Because that would, that would lead us to hold a position in conflict with what's above the surface of the water. Do you follow the point? In other words, if you conclude something that puts you in conflict with what is clear, what the Bible actually states, the above the, the, above the water level iceberg, you know you're wrong. <laughs> you know, you're, if, if your thinking and reasoning puts you in a place at odds with what's been objectively revealed, the one who's wrong isn't God, it's you. In other words, you, you've come to the wrong conclusion. So, we know that. This is one of these mysteries of the scripture. Can't grasp it, and that shouldn't bother us any. Because if the scriptures are God's revelation to us, they're rooted in the infinite God. I'm only finite. It ought to stand to reason that as God reveals some things to me, my finiteness means I can't totally comprehend all that he's revealing. I can understand enough to act on it. To know it's true. But I, I'm not going to be able to grasp the end from the beginning. I was thinking of that, even the song we were singing today, out of Isaiah 40. I mean, listen, what is true of God is, in his ways, we only can sort of grasp. You know, we're, So I am never troubled by encountering things at the word of God that I look at the mirror and sort of at this puzzled look on my face and say, I don't totally understand that. I see what you said, but I don't totally understand that. And God lovingly looks back at me in a way and says, well, what'd you expect? You know, <laughs> It was a grace for me to let you even understand what I've said, but you don't have to totally understand it. You just have to trust me with the parts of it you don't quite understand. Don't deny what is clear because you don't understand all that it says. And then after being rebuked by the Lord lovingly, then I go back and say, all right, I'll live in the tension of that because that's what you want me to do. Another thing we know from the scriptures, by the way, about this question 
is that the answer somehow is woven into God's omniscience. God's all-knowing character. That's one of the attributes of God the scripture gives us. He's all-knowing. That means all there is to know in eternity, God knows. He doesn't know it because over time it unfolds this way, and now he says, oh, well, that's the way it worked out. No, no. Omniscience means he knew all there is to know outside the framework of time. He knew all there was to know before there was anything going on. He knows. That's omniscience. He's all-knowing. So we'll come back to the question. All right, it's omniscience of God. All right, well, well, what is it that God knew, prognosin, about us that led to our being chosen if we didn't earn it and we don't deserve it? I mean, what is it, anyway, that God knew? And therein, we're left with, in my belief, a question for which we cannot completely give an answer. We know the question, and that's a key. But we can't give an answer with the same authoritative nature where somebody says, well, what must I do to be saved? I say, "Uh uh-huh, I'll give you some clear answer to that. Here's the authoritative scripture. It says this, it says this, is what you need to do. The answer to this question isn't quite on that level. Having said that, and to avoid me just having to step over here, which is what I try to do when I'm saying something that is not revelatory from the scriptures and it's more... uh, subjective, my, my assumption. I'm not going to stay doing this because it's not as comfortable my notes are over there. So assume now Gary is standing off to the side of the pulpit and he's saying, well, listen, he's not telling, he's not expositing for us right now. He's, he's sort of sharing his thinking about it, which is a little different. Everybody on the same page with me now? Okay. Well, what's my thinking? Well, my thinking about this is the foreknowledge of God linked to this uh, link to the electos means that God saw and knew from eternity what we would do with his son before we did it. Let me repeat that. That God saw from eternity what we would do with his son before we did it. He foreknew, prognosin, that unfolding stuff and chose us based on it. To be elect means that we've acted on the gospel. We didn't act on the gospel because we were elect. We became elect because we acted on the gospel. <laughs> right? And God knew the sequence. God knew the, do all of that from eternity before any of those things were done. That's how I'm framing it. That's how I'm trying to make sense of it. And the scripture goes on to tell us that the proof that we are the elect or chosen... That, that that terminology applies to us, is that we obeyed, chose to obey the gospel. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four verses, or chapter one verses four and five says, "For we know brothers loved by God that He's chosen you, electos. He says, "We know He's chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So we know it's interwoven somehow with the response to the gospel. Now, somebody could say, well, I think God chose you to respond in that way. And somebody else can say, well, I think God chose you because you responded in that way. Well, duke it out. There'll be a day when you're at the presence of the Lord. You can sort it out. But you better not deny that there's this connection. No one is chosen who has not responded to the gospel. 
The two are inseparable. There are no chosen people out there, electos, who haven't responded to the gospel. At least we know that much. The gospel, it says in that First Thessalonians passage, came with power and the Holy Spirit's work of conviction, full conviction. People were pierced to their heart. Now, there's people where people were saved not because an intellectual question was satisfied and they thought, okay, well, that's that's interesting. They were saved because what they heard pierced to the deepest part of them. And it wasn't just that they said, well, the gospel makes sense. It's that they repented and believed in that gospel. A lot of people understand the nature of the gospel who haven't responded to it, including the demons. Who says, see the truth and tremble. It's, it's the response to the gospel that is at the heart here. That's why, according in, here and back in verse, verse 2 of 1 Peter 1, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, part of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to sanctify us, to set us apart. Doctrinally and theologically and biblically, the Holy Spirit's work of this sanctifying of us begins with convicting our hearts about the gospel, convicting our hearts about sin. John, in describing in the Gospel of John, the nature of the Holy Spirit's work. In John 16, 8, it says, well, when he comes, he's going to convict the world about sin. And judgment, righteousness. There's a part of the work of the Holy Spirit and working in humanity begins with conviction of sin. Begins with a conviction about the truth of these things. The reality of coming judgment before God and the act that our righteousness won't be adequate to face it. The Holy Spirit begins the sanctifying work with that. So, this whole process of electing, choosing, is incorporated and inseparable from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Which came first, the chicken or the egg, is a little bit beyond our ability to totally say. We can have our hunches about it, but what we can say with authority is that no one who is chosen wasn't convicted. And no one who is in that special position with God is there without having acted on what they were convicted about. We need to act on that truth. Without God's loving initiative of convicting our heart, none of us would be saved. And you say, well, I think I was inclined at times to want to seek out the Lord. Well, I want to read to you an important verse in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. Listen to this. No one, with no, with, aren't any exceptions in humanity. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. Not one does good. Not even one. I mean, good in God's de- definition. Relative to one another, some people are you know, pretty ethical and upright, and other people are moral degenerates. I mean, we, we see that difference among people. But before God, God says, oh, no, no, no. The greatest of the commandments, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and etc." He says, none of you score high enough. I mean, all of you are in <laughs> bad situations. And none of you seek after me. You say, well, seek after the Lord, and he may be found. Yeah, that's true. But none of us seek after him. 
I'm not talking about once in a while having curiosity in your head. Has it ever occurred to you, why did I seek something? And the answer is because the Holy Spirit convicted your heart about it. If God had not taken the initiative to do that, you'd never have sought it. So none of us has any grounds to stand in before other people or even before God and say, well, sort of smugly, uh, well, at least I sought you and then I found these truths and I responded. None of us did that, according to the scripture. It's all at God's initiative. The Holy Spirit convicts our heart. But brothers and sisters, God in his mercy allows that to happen, but understand, the scripture says that conviction is not irresistible. That's the point, by the way. By the way, theologically, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit about the gospel is synonymous with the call of God on humanity. God's call and God's, the Holy Spirit's conviction is not irresistible. That's why in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, it says, Many are called, but few are chosen, electos. How could that be? Because the Holy Spirit convicts all kinds of people, but not everybody responds to the conviction. In fact, he convicts everyone's heart, ultimately, about the truth of the gospel and their need for Christ. But not everybody responds to that conviction. They wouldn't have had the conviction except God's mercy and grace allowing it to occur. But that conviction didn't mean they acted on it. They couldn't have acted without it, but it didn't mean they acted on it right. Only Christ working in our hearts, and our response to that puts us in a place where we become part of the electos. So I come back to my speculative thing. Okay, I'm back over here. <laughs> uh, out of that line of reasoning, uh, I think that we, were, we fit into this chosen category because God in his omniscience before it happens understands and sees how we're going to choose to respond to God's initiative, not our own, but God's initiative in the Holy Spirit's conviction of our hearts, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, verse 2 here. God saw from eternity what that would be. Uh, By the way, God's foreknowledge of it in no way says anything about causality. The word foreknow is not the same word as forecause. Those are different words. So we can't conclude that he caused the response, but we can conclude no response would have been there had he not taken the initiative to convict our hearts. I stand before God and say, well, you foreknow, but don't necessarily cause such choice. That's about as close as I can get to it. So you put it back in his hands. You better not go into it denying that he chooses, denying electos. You better not deny foreknowledge. And you better not deny anything. It's much better to come before the Lord not denying any of those things, but saying, I'm confused. And he says, well, what do you expect? You're finite. It's okay. As long as you're not denying anything, we're on, the same, we're on a good, good level. Let's, let's hang on together. Well, he concludes not by trying to settle this question for us. He leaves us, I believe, forever a bit in the dark about how all of that works out. But he does not leave us in the dark about the consequence of it, the wonderful outworkings of it. What do I mean by that? Well, he ends by saying, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Because of all of this wonder, of which we only see parts and can try to understand how the icebergs fit, he says, listen, here's four facts about the chosen, the elect. Number one, it's linked inseparably from our obedience to Jesus Christ. What is obedience to Jesus Christ? Hearing the gospel and repenting and believing. Not hearing the gospel and saying, oh, that seems intellectually feasible. Yeah, I won't, I won't debate it anymore. No, it's shown up by obeying the command to repent, acknowledge our sin, turn from rebellion, receive Christ, trust in his work on the cross. He says, listen, we were chosen, elect, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the purpose of it. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, in describing why people are judged by God and separated from God, listen to these words. When the Lord Jesus returns, starting in verse 7, is when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not God know God, on those who do not obey the gospel. You see, it's not a matter of intellectual information. It's a matter of obeying the message, which involves repentance and faith. He says, for those people... Let's understand one of the givens that we can say and believe is that, hey, we were chosen as a result of obedience to Christ. Was there something going on before that? Yeah. How much of it do you understand? Not quite sure all of that. But what is clear, there's no such thing as chosen without obedience to Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says, if, if we are his chosen, he did it for sprinkling with his blood. What does that mean? That God decided ahead of time that those who repent and believe, who obey the gospel, they would receive cleansing and forgiveness from the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God said, who's going to benefit from the cross? Those people. There is no benefit from the cross for anyone but those people. Those who have obeyed the gospel. Christ doth on the cross... It was, poss- it was enough to cover the sins of all of humanity, but it's not ap- appointed and applied except for the ones who obey the gospel. <laughs> Therefore, the question of, well, did all the sin get covered? Well, yeah, we can answer that. But one doesn't gain the benefit of it unless they repent and believe. That's why we can rest in the truth that if we are his people, we've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus why I like to have songs about the blood of Jesus in our song in our church at times. Not every song, but I'm not worried that people will be abhorred and say, oh, I don't want to be part of a church that's all talking about blood and stuff. I want us to talk about the blood. That's the wonder of it. We are sprinkled. As First Peter chapter 1 later will tell us in verses 18 and 19, we see, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways that were inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's what was sprinkled on us. We know that. Well, praise God. We can go to the mat on that. Uh, we're sprinkled with his blood, and as a result, we're cleansed and forgiven. And as a result of that, his great, God's grace and peace is multiplied to us. Number one, as God's chosen, we now stand before God under grace. What does that mean? We stand before God no longer judged on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. That's why Ephesians 2 says, uh, 
We, uh, by grace, you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's not of your doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so none of us will boast. So now I know, if I'm in this category of the chosen, of, the, of God's promise, that he says, I'll always deal with you now on the basis of grace. I'll deal with you on the basis of what Christ did, not what you've done. Everyone who has not obeyed the gospel is judged before God on the basis of what they did. We are not. That's worth praising God about. That's good news. And then he says, not only is it grace, but it's also peace. As God's chosen one, God says, we're now at peace. We're now at peace together. Why do I need that? Because in Romans 5.10 it says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Every natural Man, woman, and child is an enemy of God until they repent and believe. It's not like they're neutral. The scriptures, God says, no, 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 no. Everybody needed Jesus because all of you were my enemies. I loved you, but you were your enemies. You reject the first and greatest commandment. You've, you were all alienated from me. But in Jesus Christ, you're not alienated any longer. I've moved you from being an enemy, not just into the place of being saved, but into the place of being in my family. You've been redeemed. And as a result, we can have peace with God instead of enmity. That's why Romans 5.1 is so wonderful. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through him that we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. All right? We've moved from over here, over to here. And God says, listen, here's some things we know about the chosen, the elect. They've obeyed the gospel. They've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. They stand under grace. And they're at peace at long last with the one that they were at enmity with. Now, those are things we'll take to the bank today and praise God about Praise God about. So we can, never, we can never sing enough about the sprinkling of his blood. And we can never sing enough about grace. And, and we can never, like, use up the theme, well, we've talked enough about peace. Peace with God. Grace. Sprinkling by his blood. As a result, we are now his children. Expect to hear more of those songs in this body. Pray together. Father, we thank you for a chance to be together on this day. Continue to watch over us. Help us to rest in the wonder of being your chosen and to rejoice in the promises made to us as a result. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.